Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. I know it's been a minute, um, but you know life is happening, and we're all just um, sort of working. But new content is coming, and and it's starting with today's episode. So we're really, um, I'm really happy to share this with you. Um, this episode is a little bit different, uh, insofar as it's uh, a. a version of a talk that I gave on November 22nd at McGill University called The System is Broken, Why Canada Needs a Judicial Inquiry into Harm and Abuse in Sport and Why That's Not Enough. Um, And several folks have reached out to me asking me to um, release this as a sort of episode of the podcast. So so we thought it was a great idea. Um, And I hope that you will um, enjoy um, this talk. I hope that you take something and learn something from it. And I hope you reach out if you have any um, ideas on how we can get the government to, to listen to these, to these incredible um, and and numerous calls for a judicial inquiry, even though they are not listening. So um, as always, if you're enjoying the show, Please feel free to like, share, subscribe, and rate it on your favorite podcast outlet. Um, Without further ado, here's the episode. It's September 24th, 1988. A warm, sunny, and dry day in the Olympic Stadium in Seoul, South Korea. It also happened to be the final of the men's 100-meter sprint to decide the Olympic champion and world's fastest man. The top contenders, Carl Lewis from the United States and a Canadian sprinter named Ben Johnson, lined up in lanes 3 and 6 respectively in one of the most highly anticipated races of the year. The gun goes off, and almost immediately Johnson had a step on every other runner including the defending Olympic gold medalist from the U.S. By 50 metres, it was clear that nobody could keep up with the Canadian runner. As Johnson approached the finish line, he iconically raised his hands in victory, pointed his right index to the sky, and then to the stands towards thousands of screaming fans. With a time of 9.79 seconds, Ben Johnson had completely smashed his own world record and was now an Olympic champion. Carl Lewis was the first person to reach Johnson after the finish line, extending his right hand to congratulate the victor with a handshake. I didn't see him until 50 or 60 meters, Lewis recalled post-race. He must have really caught a flyer because he was way out ahead. NBC commentator Charlie Jones called Johnson's run unbelievable, and his colleague Frank Shorter called it absolutely incredible, the best run of Ben Johnson's life, and proclaimed, I think Carl Lewis was absolutely flabbergasted to see Ben Johnson that far ahead. CBC's Don Whitman called Johnson's run magnificent and famously remarked, Everyone in Canada, particularly the Johnson family in Rexdale, every bit as jubilant as Canadian spectators here in Seoul. Ben Johnson delivered as he promised he would. Three days later, Johnson was stripped of his gold medal and world record by the International Olympic Committee after he tested positive for the banned performance-enhancing substance, Stanozolol. Why am I telling you about an Olympic final that happened over 35 years ago? Well, the events that would transpire after the IOC announced that it would strip Johnson of his gold medal and world record would send shockwaves to the Canadian sports system, the reverberations of which would be felt in our cultural, political, and social systems, as well as our collective memories. 
Johnson's disqualification spurred something of what sociologists might call a moral panic regarding the unethical grip that had apparently taken hold of Canadian sport, a deviation from the stereotypical perception of Canada as a wholesome, equitable, and polite geopolitical nation. And perhaps most relevant for this, and perhaps most relevant here, is that I argue that this was a fundamental precursor to the current moment that we find ourselves in in Canadian sport. A moment, as I hope to convince you, that is riddled with harm and abuse. The fallout of what the Guardian's Duncan McKay called the dirtiest race in history, particularly in the case of Canadian sport, was vast. Athletes, media, fans, and politicians across the country decried Johnson's disqualification as a fundamental threat to Canada's international reputation as a peaceful, ethical, and kind nation. Indeed, then-federal sports minister Jean Charest proclaimed that Johnson should never represent Canada again, and that there will be a full inquiry into the entire affair before he established the Canadian Commission of Inquiry into the use of drugs and banned practices intended to increase athletic performance, commonly referred to as the Dubin Inquiry. In June of 1990, Ontario Court of Appeal Chief Justice Charles Dubin reported findings from a nine-month-long judicial inquiry into the use of drugs in sport that culminated in Johnson's disqualification and issued more than 70 recommendations. The inquiry detailed how athletes, doctors, and sporting organizations not only accepted, but at times downright encouraged the use of performance-enhancing drugs. It documented how stakeholders from top to bottom in Canadian sport endorsed the use of drugs despite their negative effects to win by any means necessary. The problem, as Dubin saw it, was an entire system built upon the logic of athletic dominance which enables abuses of things like performance-enhancing drugs. Indeed, as sociologist Stephen Johnson has argued, Ben Johnson was used as something of a scapegoat for a system of failure built within Canadian sport. As a black immigrant to Canada, Johnson was easily framed as a doper and as a bad apple in Canadian sport, obfuscating the fact that Johnson was enabled by an entire system made up of people who encouraged the very act of using performance-enhancing drugs. A system built and funded by the Canadian government. Dubin condemned the cultural shift in Canadian sport from focusing on widespread participation and fun to an unrelenting quest to be the best and to win at any cost. He documented that, following Canada's loss to Russia in the 1967 Ice Hockey World Championships, Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau established a national task force on sport, which ultimately recommended the creation of an independent body to be known as Sport Canada, and with a mandate, quote, to provide a focus for the administration, support, and growth of sport in Canada. That is to say, an organization devoted to promoting mass participation in sport. However, as Dubin concluded, quote, While task force reports acknowledge the benefits of widely based participation in sport, in fact, government support for sport, particularly since the mid-1970s, has more and more been channeled towards the narrow objective of winning medals in international competition. Notwithstanding protestations to the contrary, the primary objective has become the gold medal. 
This sends the wrong message to athletes, coaches, and sport organizations, all of whom are funded in one way or another by the government of Canada. Government funding should not enshrine victory as the sole objective of participation in sport. As sports historian Dick Moriarty said of the Johnson debacle, this cultural change was a predictable result from the shift in goal of Sport Canada from its initial mandate, which was directed to mass participation, to its 1988 goal to win medals through national sport organizations. Sport had become a tool of government focused on the creation and recreation of elite international athletics as a geopolitical strategy of dominance within a global capitalist system. Indeed, in a 1989 policy statement, Jean Charest outlined the mission of Sport Canada to, quote, elevate Canada to one of the top three positions in the world in the area of sport as measured by medals won. But Dubin's report urged the government to decouple funding for sport from success in competition measured simply by medal counts and return to a sport-for-all model and ensure programming was made available to the broader community, measured by the extent to which it encourages participation in marginalized communities. As Dubin concluded, If winning a gold medal in Olympic competition is the only achievement worthy of recognition, then everything is permissible in order to win. Such a proposition is completely unacceptable. But are we any better off today? Have we learned any lessons at all from what Dubin himself highlighted as emblematic of the problems associated with a win-at-any-cost model of sport? The culture of winning at all costs that has been associated with the 1988 Olympic finals has not been lost or forgotten in Canadian sport. It has, I argue, become even more deeply embedded, more entrenched, more intertwined, and more foundational to our current sports system. Just look at the Own the Podium campaign, founded in 2004, which continues to operate on the basis of a vision to make Canada, quote, a world leader in high-performance sport at the Olympic and Paralympic Games, and receives funding primarily from the government of Canada. Or how about the public-private partnership between RBC and the Canadian Olympic Committee, known as RBC Training Ground, launched in 2016, which is a self-professed talent identification and athlete funding program designed to find young athletes with Olympic potential and provide them with the resources they need to achieve their podium dreams. These are but two of the many programs funded, at least in part by the Government of Canada, and aimed at producing elite athletes to compete on the world stage. They represent, to varying degrees, Canada's financial investment in Sport Canada's mission to enhance opportunities for Canadians to excel in sport, while simultaneously highlighting the lack of material resources in support of its mission to enhance opportunities for all Canadians to participate in sport. And thus, they illuminate the very shift Dubin condemned away from mass participation in sport to an incessant focus on winning athletic competitions at the highest level. This shift, in my view, explains at least in part why harm and abuse have proliferated throughout the Canadian sport landscape. For creating a system in which winning is the only thing that matters creates an environment where harm and abuse are not only made possible, but perhaps even more profoundly, implicitly and explicitly endorsed at nearly every level. Over the course of this podcast's life, we've been grateful to speak with folks directly affected by abuse within the Canadian sports system. We spoke to retired gymnast and co-founder of Gymnast for Change Canada, Kim Shore, who recounted the endemic nature of coercion, 
body shaming, intimidation, gaslighting, and sexual abuse that they experience as a gymnast in Canada, and directly called for a judicial inquiry as an important measure. Shore also testified to this abuse of the Standing Committee on Canadian Heritage when she questioned whether it was just her who was forcibly kissed by a married coach. Shore recounted how she had to miss practices to avoid him, who suffered two grand mal seizures after a training accident that got no medical attention, and who earned a full-ride scholarship to a Division I NCAA school only to give it up to escape a predatory coach, who was later banned for life. Shore spoke to the necessity of a national inquiry as one of many things that the Canadian government must do to reconcile the abuse that has been enabled from top to bottom. As Shore put it, I still wonder how many complaints it takes to trigger a safe sport investigation. What is a child's safety worth? In asking this, Shore also points to how abuse in sport runs counter to any objective to be an elite, to be an elite athletic nation. It's also a numbers game, Shore told us. We're pushing kids out of sport. If you want to be good at sport, you want to have more people participating in it, not fewer. We also spoke to former Vancouver Whitecaps player Kira McCormick, who detailed how her and multiple teammates consistently reported the sexual misconduct they experienced at the hands of coach Bob Berarda. Kira also testified directly to the standing committee that these reports were obfuscated and obscured by the Whitecaps. At that time, a notable training ground for the Canadian women's national soccer team. McCormick recounted how powerful coaches, administrators, team owners, and even media members were complicit in what can be characterized as a cover-up to protect the brand, which allowed Berarda to remain active coaching soccer for years. In 2022, Berarda was convicted of three counts of sexual assault and one count of sexual touching involving underage players. McCormick told us, as well as the standing committee, only a judicial inquiry into harm and abuse in sport will shine necessary light on the harms of the past while rebuilding trust for a better future. We spoke to Dr. Christy Alain about the culture of harm and abuse in Canadian hockey that implicitly and explicitly endorses sexual and gender-based violence at the structural level. Dr. Alain spoke to us about the code of silence and complicity that exists within a youthful masculine hockey culture that characterizes Canadian hockey. We explored how this particular manifestation of hockey culture is embedded within a broader structure of Canadian sport, with all the people, organizations, and practices that make it up, and that not only constitute appropriate expressions of masculinity, but also work to subject women to those expressions. Indeed, I would be absolutely remiss here not to connect these discussions with the horrifying allegations of sexual assault launched against several members of the 2018 Canadian World Junior Hockey Championship team, or the numerous other cases illuminating toxic Canadian hockey culture which have caused immeasurable trauma for survivors. Abuse survivors' calls for a national inquiry like those made by Shore, McCormick, and many others have been made quite literally directly to the Canadian government. Yet those calls have to date been ignored by at least two federal sport ministers and a parliament at large. We saw numerous survivors come forward at the Standing Committees on the Status of Women in Canadian Heritage held in 2023. At these meetings, athletes from across the sporting landscape recounted their trauma and urgently called for a national inquiry. 
Indeed, we heard stories of a broken system in which powerful authorities and administrators were able to consolidate their power and privilege while athletes across the country suffered from the harm those authorities enabled. The testimony shared at the Standing Committees clearly demonstrate that the efforts of Sport Canada have failed. The current system, as it still operates today, has failed athletes. It's completely and utterly broken. Accountability measures putatively drawn up to protect athletes are most often missing or ignored altogether, and the trust is broken at all levels. We also got to speak to Dr. McIntosh Ross, co-founder of Scholars Against Abuse in Canadian Sport, which we are members here on the show, who talked to us about how this system and the complicit administrators, politicians, and even academics that benefit from it simply cannot fix itself. McIntosh noted that the recently established Office of the Sports Integrity Commissioner is an important development, as it provides a national-level reporting mechanism, but it lacks the jurisdiction, the power, and the buy-in to pursue large-scale reform from the grassroots through to elite sport levels. Most importantly, Mac told us, as an organization under the umbrella of Sport Canada, it lacks the trust of many survivors at a moment in time where there is no trust in the system at all. It's time to rebuild trust in the Canadian sports system. And that has to begin with a full, clear, and robust understanding of the depth and scope of these problems. The only way to understand the scope is, in my view, in the view of countless survivors I've spoken with, to launch a national inquiry into harm and abuse with the objective of gaining a full understanding of how embedded harm is within the Canadian sports system. This national inquiry should be initiated immediately, and it should be trauma-informed, intersectional, and survivor-led. It should have a clear mandate and implementation plan, and it should consult with Indigenous communities and align with the TRC's sport-related calls to action. It should include clear governance audits of Sport Canada, the Canadian Olympic Committee, own the podium, and all national sports organizations that receive public funds. It should investigate oversight and accountability mechanisms in all of these organizations to ensure that effective and transparent reporting and accountability systems are in place for survivors. And it should tie any funding distributed by the Government of Canada to compliance with proper governance and the insurance of safe sport within these organizations. Scholarly critics of a national inquiry incessantly bemoan the potential cost of a judicial inquiry and lament over the necessity of such an investigation. They suggest, representing a relative minority of scholars, that not only would a judicial inquiry be incredibly costly, but they insist that we know enough about abuse and maltreatment in Canadian sport and thus conclude that, quote, a judicial inquiry is unlikely to add much to our current understanding of the problem. Instead of an inquiry, they maintain, we should look to alternatives like restorative justice and create more oversight organizations within the current structure of Sport Canada. But it remains clear to me, and I hope it is to you too, that harm and abuse are patterned across and throughout the Canadian sport landscape, from gymnastics to soccer to rowing to boxing to hockey to water polo to figure skating to swimming to skiing to bobsleigh. Athletes have come forward to tell their stories of abuse and harm, yet little has been done about it. And what do we know about the reporting of abuse and violence? 
Well, there is broad criminological consensus that tells us only a small percentage of instances of physical, sexual, emotional, and gender-based abuse and violence are reported and ultimately known. It is therefore a relatively safe empirical conclusion that the stories that we've heard today and at the standing committees represent what Matthew Hall calls the tip of the iceberg. So any suggestion that we know the depth and scope of abuse in the context of Canadian sport is not only misleading, but it's actually a source of misinformation that we know to be empirically specious at best. If a simple negative test for a performance-enhancing drug was enough to launch a public inquiry into Canadian sport, what does that say about our current government's response to the numerous reports and testimony of violent, sexual, physical, and emotional abuse shared by survivors from coast to coast to coast? The Dubin inquiry reportedly cost $3.7 million, which, adjusting for inflation, would be about $7.5 million today. By comparison, the annual budget for Sport Canada is in excess of $233 million distributed through three programs, the Athlete Assistance Program, which gives direct financial support to selected national team members, the Sport Support Program, which funds national sport organizations, and the Hosting Program, which helps organizations host the Canada Games and other international sporting events. The total annual spend by the Canadian government on lawyers, consultants, and non-disclosure experts is unknown. The cost of the Dubin Inquiry replicated today would represent 3.2% of the money Sport Canada spends on elite athletes, sport NGOs, and hosting international sporting events. I don't know about you, but I simply do not find the argument that a national inquiry would be too costly very compelling when you compare it to what we spend on elite sports in this country. In fact, I would suspect that it's rather offensive to the numerous survivors who have come forward documenting the abuses they experience in their sport, and to the innumerable survivors who have not, or cannot, speak out. Finally, as something of a criminologist who has a deep understanding of the philosophy and practice of restorative justice, one centered around addressing harm through repairing relationships between a wrongdoer and a survivor, rather than more punitive measures, I find it quite appalling, to be honest, that scholars would advocate for such an approach seemingly without consulting with athlete survivors. General critiques of our neoliberal implementation of restorative justice across the criminal justice system aside, over the past four years I've spoken directly with athlete survivors across the country and an overarching sentiment I hear is that survivors have literally no interest in repairing relationships with their abusers or exposing themselves to the re-victimization that might occur in such a reconciliation. So I do very, very much question the motives of critics of a judicial inquiry who favor restorative justice practices as an alternative solution. But a judicial inquiry isn't enough. It's simply not enough to do justice for the survivors who have already come forward with harrowing stories of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse resulting from their participation in Canadian sport. We need to do more for these athlete survivors, and we need to act now. A judicial inquiry is indeed important to find out just how deeply embedded harm and abuse are within the Canadian sports system, but it's just one step of many that must take place to reconcile for the harms I've spoken about today.
we must consider immediate legislative changes to strengthen child protection laws, whistleblower protection laws, and labor laws that protect athletic workers vis-a-vis their working conditions, earning protections, welfare, and health and safety. We can immediately ban the use of non-disclosure agreements that work to silence survivors of violence and abuse by any national sport organization receiving funding from the Canadian government. We can financially support the interest groups currently working to make sport a safer space for athletes. Brilliant organizations like Gymnasts for Change, Figure Skating for Change, Global Athlete, and others. We can immediately provide financial assistance to survivors who have come forward with their stories. We can provide material resources for education programs at the youth, amateur, and elite levels directed towards athletes, parents, coaches, and administrators on identifying and preventing coercive behaviors, grooming, gaslighting, hazing, emotional and psychological abuse, bullying, and support programming centered around consent and its very impossibility in any coach-athlete relationship that will always be characterized by power and conflict of interest. We must completely reimagine our system of identifying, selecting, training, and reviewing coaches to ensure that coaches with past abuses of their power are not able to simply re-enter those positions of power in the future. And we can, and must, actively believe survivors and immediately pause funding to any national sport organization with outstanding complaints of physical or sexual violence until they can prove that they have addressed the problem. We can, and should, listen to survivors and take what they say seriously. At the first public session of Dubin's inquiry, the commissioner questioned whether we, as Canadians, have lost track of what athletic competition is all about. Is there too much emphasis, he asked, by the public and by the media on the winning of a gold medal in Olympic competition as the only achievement worthy of recognition? Dubin went on to question whether, as a society, we've created a climate in sport in which the only good is perceived to be winning and the manner of doing so is of no consequence. Only the winner is accorded praise and financial reward without recognition of the outstanding achievements of those who also compete but do not come first. The role of the media in fostering and encouraging this narrow, superficial view of success cannot be ignored. He said, I have detailed the negative reaction by the media to outstanding performances by Canadian athletes that did not result in gold medals. This, too, has placed the wrong emphasis on what sport is all about. The problem articulated by Dubin in 1990, and to which I don't think we have reconciled with, is, as I see it, a cultural approach to sport that aligns incredibly well with the social reproductive system of racial capitalism. That is to say, We've built an incredibly strong cultural understanding of sport as explicitly not about fun, play, or games personship, and instead about the quest to be the best, the most dominant, and the most successful athletic nation. This is all part of a broader project of solidifying our place in a global racial capitalist system that only recognizes the winners and inevitably disposes of the losers. Part of that project is, in fact, a disposal of the people who are survivors of the harms and abuses that the very worst of our sports system has to offer. Those at the margins of a society that already wants to ignore them. The racialized, the able diverse, the gender diverse, and in particular trans folks, and others, 
who have already faced immense barriers to political and social inclusion. For many who have survived the physical, emotional, sexual, and racial violence embedded in our sporting culture, the logical response has been to leave that environment, leave their sport, and no longer participate. A consequence of this is that those at the margins who have experienced the bulk of this trauma have quite literally been erased through attrition in sport. They simply, and quite rightly, no longer participate in it. So for hearing these horrific stories of abuse and harm over and over and over again in Canadian sport, we're only now scratching the surface of the vast iceberg of harm that exists as a fundamental feature, not unintended consequence, of a system of sport that emboldens such behaviours. If we want to do justice for survivors of harm and abuse in Canadian sport, we need a judicial inquiry. But that's nowhere near enough. We also need to act we must act now to ensure that there are effective mechanisms for oversight, accountability, and perhaps most importantly, reparation for the harms already done and the harms being done literally right now across the country. Anything less is a metaphor for action. It's an obfuscation of the long history of harm and abuse that we know about in this space, and that we know is only a small snapshot of the true reality of abuse in Canadian sport. And it's a surface-level attempt to reinforce and replicate a system of sport that inevitably produces and endorses abusive spaces within a project of winning at all costs. For if we continue to allow and obfuscate violent abuse in sport, and sport is supposedly integral to our national identity, one has to conclude that violent abuse is indeed a part of Canada. And I don't want sport to be about violent abuse, and surely you don't want Canada to be about violent abuse. So let's do something about it, and let's do something now. Launch the National Inquiry, but more importantly, change the system that's broken right now. Support athletes who come forward documenting their experiences of abuse within the Canadian sports system. Believe them, and provide material resources to athletes who are currently experiencing these harms. Pull funding from any sports organization that fails to ensure a safe space until they prove they can. Rather, than until survivors have to prove their own abuses. And perhaps above all, do your part to usher in a new era of Canadian sporting culture, one that perhaps leans a little more into the fun, the play, the game's personship that we are all so fond of in sport, and a little less into the incessant competition that fuels the social reproductive nature of racial capitalism and the geopolitical pursuit of dominance and winning at any cost. For the costs of this pursuit are real people, and they deserve better from us.